Revelation chapter 11, give ear to the word of God. John writes, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Uh, These are those two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouths, uh, from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever Endeavor, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was for you, have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray once again and ask God to help us understand his word and to bless his word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, as always, that you give it to us to be a, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we ask uh, once again that you would be pleased to teach us your word, work in us by your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last Sunday, uh, you might remember that uh, we saw that in Revelation 10, uh, all the way up through verse 14 of chapter 11, it it really is a kind of an interlude or a break in the action of sorts. 
between the sixth and seventh angels sounding their trumpets of judgment. Uh, this is the second time in Revelation where you've had you know, a set of seven interrupted between the sixth and the seventh thing. The first time it was the sixth and seventh seal of that scroll that was in the right hand of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God in the vision, as he opened each seal, God's judgments were poured out, including things like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, so-called. And then when you got to the sixth one, there was a break. And chapter 7, you know, instead of suddenly going into the seventh seal, was a break in the action to kind of uh, teach something in particular of comfort to God's people. Well, here I think we're having the same thing happen again. You have uh, the the trumpets, the seven trumpets of God's judgment, and, in, and you have the first six going, and then you have this long extended break between the sixth and the seventh trumpet, which you'll... We, we see in our text in chapter, in verse 15, you finally have the seventh angel blowing his trumpet or sounding his trumpet. Now, uh, the first interlude back in chapter seven, I think, was to show us to comfort the church, to comfort the church in the midst of her persecutions and afflictions. Uh, that's where you have that sealing of the 144,000. And that was meant to show us the security of our salvation of the church militant. No matter what happens to God's people on this earth, uh, God will not lose one of his own. And then you have right after that in chapter 7, that vision of that great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe, language, and, and people in heaven praising God. And so you see, despite all the persecution and opposition and hostility to the gospel, uh, God's purposes and salvation in, in his son will be fulfilled in, a, in, a, in, a, in an amazing way. You know, that's a vision, but I think, you know, at certain times in, in the book of Revelation, uh, even though it's in the form of a vision and things are symbolized, uh, there are some very literal truths being taught. And I think one day in heaven, that's what we're going to see. We're going to see a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that if you can go outside and number the stars, you can number your, your offspring. And that offspring, if you're a believer, is you. Everyone that's ever going to believe and ever has believed in Jesus Christ for salvation uh, is going to be a part of that you know, innumerable multitude in heaven. And so we are to be, as the church, encouraged, even in time of trial and affliction, that God, Jesus Christ, is building his church, as he says, and the gates of hell shall what? Shall never prevail against it. Kingdoms, you know, the kings of this earth and the wicked, they they gather together in counsel against the Lord, Psalm 2 says, and against his anointed. And what does God do? We said last week, God laughs. They have no chance. They're going to try, but they have no chance to stop the gospel's advance and growth. Well, this this interlude in chapter 10 and most of chapter 11, between what we saw last week and what we're reading this Sunday, I think, is emphasizing something different. It is, I think, given to encourage the suffering church. But I think here this interlude, this, this break in the action, is meant to emphasize the importance of the mission and witness of the church on this earth. Now that's that's a that's a theme all through Revelation, right? You'll see uh, the witnessing of the Word of God and the testimony of Christ mentioned explicitly throughout the book. In fact, John uh, tells us in the very first chapter of the book, in Revelation chapter one, verse five, what does he call Jesus Christ Himself? One of the names he gives for Jesus in Revelation one five is he calls him quote the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. I mean, that first chapter sets the stage for everything that follows, and the first thing that we're told about the Lord Jesus Christ is that he's the faithful witness. 
Not to mention he's the ruler of the kings on earth. It may not look like he's the ruler of the kings on earth, but he is. And we'll see his reign consummated here later in this chapter. Not only that, but what does John tell us about himself in chapter 1? Revelation 1.9, John says that he was, quote, on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What was Patmos? This wasn't a vacation. It was a prison colony. It was a place of exile for those that the Roman uh, government wanted to put away. So why was John in exile on this little island in the middle of no, it's, you know, it's think of it as Alcatraz. First century Alcatraz. Why was he there? On account of what? The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So here early on in the book, in the very first chapter, you see another prominent theme throughout the book, and that is uh, not just the testimony of Christ that the church is to bear, but suffering tribulation on account of faithfulness to the gospel. That's, that is a theme, those two twin themes are woven throughout Revelation, and they come to front and center here in chapter 11. In chapter 11, both of those themes are right in the front for us to see, uh, and they're there through this vision, maybe an odd, seeming, seemingly odd uh, vision to you and me, of uh, these two witnesses in verses 3 to 14. Now, much as, as is the case throughout Revelation, much of the imagery in this chapter is borrowed from or alludes to or points back to various places in the Old Testament. There's so many of them, uh, I found it almost impossible to try to bring them all up and explain them all because there's so many of them brought up. So for the sake of time, we're not going to go into each and every little thing from the Old Testament that this part of the book points to. Now, as uh, I have the privilege of uh, being a full-time pastor of of spending much more time in the Word of God than maybe uh, you get to do, I'm thankful that it's part of my job. But when I was reading and preparing uh, for this for this chapter, uh, a lot of the things I read in the commentaries made me think I wasn't too smart to uh, to try to pull this one off. Uh, it's a very difficult chapter. Revelation in general, we find much difficulty with in some ways. Uh, but Revelation 11 is a difficult chapter to to interpret and preach. And so I found, uh, frankly, preparing to preach on this to be quite the challenge. Uh, if nothing else, uh, if that serves to humble your pastor, that's a good thing. So maybe God God knows what he's doing. Uh, one co- uh, prominent commentator goes as far as to say this. He says, most commentators note that chapter 11 is especially difficult to interpret. You know, you get the you get the impression when you read these great commentators that even they are going, your guess is as good as mine. You know, I, nobody wants to claim to have the right view on Revelation 11, so if that's the case with them, I certainly won't try to claim to solve any difficulties or, or questions. You know, given the nature of the book of Revelation in general, that's quite a mouthful to say that. The, of all the book, this chapter is the one where most of them kind of Shrug their shoulders a little bit and say, "Here's my best, uh, my best attempt." So this will be our best attempt uh, this morning. Uh, regarding the various time references found throughout this chapter, things like 42 months, 1260 days, in other words, three and a half years, just like that thing in First Kings that we read. James Ramsey writes this. He says, "There is no part of the Book of Revelation the interpretation of which has elicited more learning ingenuity." and labor than this period of 42 months, or 1260 days, and there is none that has rendered less satisfactory results. In other words, what tends to happen in this chapter is, many uh, scholars and and, uh, commentators and pastors 
get wrapped around the axle on this number. And they spend all their time trying to nail down what this three and a half year period is going to be, where it is going to be, when it is going to be, what it is going to be, who it's going to be about, uh, so much so that they lose track of the entire chapter and they, to use the phrase we often use, they lose the forest for the trees. He's saying all this, all this work they've put into it has not exactly been uh, profitable for the most part. He goes on to point out that uh, an unhealthy desire to try to discern the times and the seasons, which you know the Lord Jesus Christ warns us against in Acts 1-7. He said, it's not for you to know, right? Well, when, when God says, when Jesus says, it's not for you to know, what's the saying? We've said it this morning conversation. It's none of your business. Do what I tell you to do and worry about that later is what it kind of boils down to. And and so we would be well, I think, do well to not try to press this passage beyond its intended Use by trying to seek to know the times and seasons of Christ's return, for example. Our concern should be rather to keep our hands to the plow and our eyes upon Christ. That's what this chapter is supposed to do. It's supposed to help us, as we sometimes suffer affliction for bearing witness to Christ, to keep our hands on the plow, keep our eyes fixed on Christ, and keep, keep on pressing on. And so with your kind permission, we're not going to spend a lot of time this morning trying to dissect all the various imagery in the chapter in order to try to pin things down, either in historical figures or in the distant future, those kinds of things. Uh, I don't think that they are often that, all that edifying or helpful. So if when we're done this morning, if you sit there and you say to yourself, but I have questions about this number and that figure and who the beast is and all that, I'll apologize in advance for not answering your questions, at least during the sermon, and I won't promise to be able to answer all those questions after the sermon uh, either. But uh, a few reminders, I think, are helpful as we go through the book, and I might sound like a broken record sometimes, but that's not without reason. I know you're saying what's a record, right? We must keep in mind, first of all, that Revelation was given to us for the purpose, primary purpose, of comforting and encouraging the suffering church. If we lose sight of that, we're going to get in trouble as we try to interpret the book in general. Uh, if we aren't reading it to be comforted and encouraged in the work of of, the, of, of Christ's gospel, uh, we're missing. We're really missing the point. This book is meant to exhort us to endure hardship, as Paul says elsewhere, to endure hardship as good soldiers of Christ. There's a lot that the world will throw our way as we testify to the gospel, and this is meant to encourage us to keep on pressing on. We are called to use Paul's words to keep the faith, to be faithful to the word of God and testimony of Jesus Christ. That same word of God and testimony to Christ that landed John on Patmos. You know, John isn't some, uh, you know, when John talked about suffering for the gospel, he doesn't belabor the point, but he's doing it while he's writing about it. He's no stranger to suffering. Uh, the, the apostle of love, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, didn't doubt Jesus' love for him even while he was suffering on Patmos. One more thing to keep in mind is that Revelation teaches us, I, I've said before, it teaches us literal truths in a symbolic way. It teaches literal truths by using symbols and signs. Uh, literal truth is taught here by means of signs and symbols. And so what does that mean? That means that we have to be very careful that we don't veer off into an overly literal approach or literalistic approach to this book. To do so is to violate the very first thing practically that we're taught 
In the book, in Revelation 1, verse 1, I'm going to read the King James because I think it puts it more plainly in this particular verse. It says, John writes, The revelation of Jesus Christ, it belongs to him, it's about him, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And here it is. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant, John. How are the things in Revelation told to us? They are signified. We get the word, you know, sign, the same word sign from it. When in the book of John, which John also wrote, you have a seven miraculous, same word, signs, the miracles that were meant to, to, to authenticate who Jesus is and was. Same word is being used here in a, in a verb form. It's he's signifying things to us by means of visions. This is not a, to use the, the, the imagery that so many dispensationalists have used with this book, uh, John, uh, the Apostle John was not given a, a I was going to say VHS, you know, a video of things to come as they really are going to look, and then he struggles to describe them because he doesn't know what Cobra helicopters are. That's not what this is about. They are symbols that are meant to teach things to us if we have the ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so we don't want to spend too much time uh, trying to decipher this chapter and treat it like a puzzle to be solved, so much so that we miss its central message and its application for our lives. The Lord signifies his message to us by means of signs and symbols. So that is the message we need to hear. And as we read through this chapter and the rest of the book, we should keep in mind the things. Remember the letters to the seven churches Every one of them had this towards the end. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, it's it's almost ironic. Now, in the letters, the things were said very plainly, but let the churches hear what the Spirit is saying through this vision, through kind of a a word picture uh, way of doing things. So regardless of what's what your view of the temple is in this chapter, what regardless of your view of who these two witnesses are in the chapter, the point shouldn't be missed that this chapter has a lot to say to us if we have the ears to hear it by way of application to us in the church today. We must be careful to have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to us, even to our little church. We might not think this has much to do with us, but it, it certainly does. Now, this chapter speaks of the importance of the church's witness and testimony to Christ and his gospel, And again, it also reminds us of the opposition that you will sometimes face for your faithfulness to that testimony. You know, one of the reasons that we often don't speak up and witness and bear witness for the gospel, I think, is because we know opposition is going to come. And this chapter is meant to encourage us uh, to persevere. So the first thing we're going to look at in our, our chapter, the first thing that John tells us about is about the measuring of the temple. The measuring of the temple and the preservation of the church. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says, Then I, in this vision, John, I was given a measuring rod, or a reed, like a staff. And I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship there. Not just the building itself, but those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple, Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations or the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for how long? Forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. 
Now that number, which we'll get into a little bit, 1260, think of it in a lot of ways like the number 40. If you know your Bible, if you've been a Christian for a long time and you've read your whole Bible a number of times, when I say the number 40, some things probably pop into your head. The number 40 is a prominent number, especially in the Old Testament, not just the Old Testament. How long was Jesus out in the wilderness being tempted by the devil? Without food and water, 40 days and 40 nights. It, it is a symbol of trial and testing. How long were the rains in Noah's flood on the earth? 40 days and 40 nights. It's, it's, it's a very common number in Scripture. Revelation is a book of numbers. Uh, the number seven is the number of completeness or perfection. And what is this number of? All through the chapter, you have three and a half. It's like the middle. It's like half of perfection. It's not. It, it, it's a. It's a symbol. When you think of the, the the text that we read earlier in the in the service, First Kings sixteen and seventeen. Uh, now James tells us the actual length, right? James five seventeen. How long in Elijah's day did it not rain on the earth? Three and a half years, which is what forty two months, twelve hundred and sixty days. If every month is thirty days, kind of thing. Um, so we have to be careful that we don't. Don't get too wrapped around the axle about that number. It's meant to point us back to similar things in the Old Testament, even to Elijah himself, which the rest of this chapter also points us to. It says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, that, that may seem like a strange thing for John to be told to do. Hey, John, no, now, now you're not just going to look at things. I know I just told you to eat a scroll in chapter 10. Now I want you to measure the temple, which that seems like that would take quite a while. Now the fact that, that the temple is mentioned here at all, with no mention of its destruction in AD 70, I think is, is, is reason to believe that, uh, that perhaps this book, Revelation, was written prior to that destruction. Now most modern commentators will, will they almost all say AD 95 or so. And there's a lot of a lot of disagreement over that. I think the fact that the temple is mentioned here without any kind of hint uh, that that would seem odd to John that the temple's there. And remember, it's a vision. He's not going to Jerusalem itself, the physical place to to measure it. But I think that may be an indication uh, that the temple is still standing as this book uh, is being written. Now, if it were written uh, prior to AD seventy, then what that means is. At least some of the message of this book may be, and I think it is, directed to uh, or is about uh, a prophecy of, of God's judgment upon Jerusalem that was to come. When, he, when that city was destroyed, the temple was, was raised to the ground. Remember in the Olivet Discourse, in the, in the, in the uh, Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 and even in Luke, Jesus very explicitly said the temple was going to be destroyed when his disciples said, oh, look at these great buildings, I'm paraphrasing, you know, oh, this is a magnificent structure. And Jesus says, guess what? Not one stone is going to be left on top of another. It's going to be destroyed. And they couldn't get their minds wrapped around that idea. Well, I think the same thing is true in Revelation. In fact, I think part of this emphasis, it shouldn't be the only thing we talk about and emphasize, but the fact that he alludes to so many Old Testament prophetic passages that dealt with, frankly, specifically the destruction of the temple should be a big hint. And we're going to see that in some regard, but we shouldn't say it's all about that. 
Otherwise, what is it? Then it's just an interesting book that has very little application to us today and the church going forward. I think it's probably uh, both and, not either, either or. This book has great applications to us, and so does this chapter. Now, the measuring of the temple points us back to another Old Testament prophecy. In fact, I've lost track. Maybe you haven't. Uh, how many times in the first 11 chapters does John point us back, or do these visions point us back to the book of Ezekiel? It seems like every other chapter, it's Ezekiel, it's Ezekiel, it's Ezekiel. Well, here we have the same thing again. Now, Ezekiel's one of those Old Testament prophetic books that maybe you read and you just scratch your head and you have trouble understanding what it's about. I, I admit, I get there sometimes myself. But in Ezekiel 40 to 43, you have a vision of Ezekiel measuring the temple. And it goes on for three chapter, four chapters. Ezekiel 40 through chapter 43. And you have in chapter 43, finally, the glory of the Lord once again filling his temple. Now, in Ezekiel's day, the temple had been destroyed. So imagine the comfort that must have been to Ezekiel. Like, you know, when you and I are reading, if you, maybe you have done one of these things where you read the Bible in a year, and sometimes you get to certain books, you know, certain parts of Leviticus or Numbers or Ezekiel, and you kind of, you know, you, you stumble along a little bit. You think, okay, I'm just going to keep reading. I have no idea why I'm reading this or what, or, or I have no idea why God put this in the scripture. And so you read just like the original design of the temple in the Old Testament earlier in, in, in Exodus. You might say to yourself, uh, why, why so specific? Why all these measurements and all these numbers and details? What am I supposed to get out of that? And when you read Ezekiel 40 to 43, I, you know, it may seem like it's uh, beating it to death. He's measuring all these different parts of the temple with, with, uh, you know, these measuring rods and things. Uh, by and and what what do you think that was for? If you if you realize that the temple had been destroyed, and all of a sudden Ezekiel's measuring in a vision, measuring all these different parts of the temple, it's it's God's way of emphasizing it's going to be rebuilt in his uh, at some point future to Ezekiel. Even though he had judged, he had chastised his people, the temple would be rebuilt. Well, I think in some ways, although this could be an argument for the book being written after AD 70, I suppose, this could be a symbolic way, not of the physical temple being rebuilt and comforting God's people through John, but of showing him God's temple is still being built in the church. God still has a temple, and nothing is going to stop that from happening, even though he was you know, prophesying, and just like Jesus did, that the physical earthly temple in Jerusalem was going to be destroyed and has never been rebuilt in almost 2,000 years since. That didn't mean the end of the temple. It meant the end of what the shadow of the real temple would be. God is, God's temple is not a literally a place or a physical structure. In fact, what are some things that the temple of God in the New Testament uh, tells us what, what does the New Testament tell us the temple was a picture of? It's a trick question. Uh, at least two things, right? The first thing is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, John 1.14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So literally, it's the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. You know, the first version of the temple was a tent, a portable temple, so to speak. In, in John's gospel, the Jewish religious leaders, the unbelieving religious leaders, asked Jesus... For a sign of his authority. You know, who died and made you boss? Who, how, what, how do you have the right to throw us out of the temple? That, the specific question is not just, 
authority in general. It's like, you know, he's turning over money tables, the, 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 the money changers' tables and throwing them out with a whip and, you know, wasn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And they're saying, you know, who died and made you boss? How do you have the authority over the temple to tell us? And they thought, who did they think was in charge? They thought they were in charge. And they were, how do you have this authority to tell us to get out of the temple and to stop doing what we're doing? And Jesus says this, destroy this temple and in three days I will what? I will raise it up. And they say back to him in John 2, 20 to 21, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, Herod's, Herod's temple. 46 years! And will you raise it up in three days? Now was Jesus saying he was going to raise the building up? No, he says, John notes, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And what, and what did, they actually did what he said. They didn't realize it. Destroy this temple. Kill him. And they did. And what did he do? After three days, he raised it back up. He raised him, he was raised back up from the dead. It was a prophecy of his resurrection and his, and the cross. But he was also teaching us about the real temple. The real temple ultimately is Christ. The temple has always been intended to be a picture of Christ. Christ himself is the real tabernacle. He's the real temple. Christ is the ultimate high priest. He is the priesthood of which that earthly priesthood was a shadow. He is the sacrifice of atonement that all the earthly sacrifices was meant to point forward to. When John the Baptist, John one twenty nine, when John the Baptist pointed him out, what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one that all those other ones pointed to. And he's not an actual lamb. And what's he called in Revelation? The Lamb of God, the one who was slain and yet stands as having been made alive again. So Jesus Christ is really the main thing, the main one, that the earthly tabernacle and temple were intended to point us to. He is the fulfillment. He is the point. He is the substance of which the shadows of the tabernacle, the temple, all the priesthood, all the offerings and sacrifices, all of them were meant to point forward to him. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul uh, tells us, in addition to the fact that Christ is the temple and the one, the place, so to speak, where, where God dwells with man, uh, he also says that Christ is the chief cornerstone of the temple. So he kind of mixes his metaphors. Jesus is the temple and he's also the chief cornerstone. Listen to Ephesians two nineteen to 22. Paul says, so then you... He's talking to Gentile Christians mostly. You, you then are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, and here it is, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord and then he adds, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Remember when Jesus was on the cross, what happened to that the veil, the curtain in the temple? It was torn in two. It was supposed to be a hint. That's done. Now, they, they kept using it until it was destroyed, but he's saying that's done. That pointed to this, the rending of his flesh. The real, the real curtain in the temple pointed, the, the Bible says, to his flesh, to Jesus' flesh being torn and his body being broken 
for us. And when the temple was destroyed, did God now lack a temple? No, you're his temple if you're a believer. All the believers together throughout time are being built uh, into the growing into a holy temple in the Lord. So when Paul was ministering the gospel, now I don't know if he had this in his mind as he was doing it, in his mind, in some ways, he's saying, I'm, I'm helping build the temple. The real temple, the one that can't be destroyed, the one that's not made with hands. The one that's eternal in heaven. And again, when Jesus Christ breathed his last, Mark fifteen thirty-eight, uh, what happened? That curtain in the temple was, was torn in two. And so when that, when, when Christ died, what happened to the earthly temple? It was made obsolete. It had served fulfilled its purpose in God's design. And finally, in AD 70, it was destroyed, as if to be a bigger hint. That is not the way things are done anymore. Read the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews prepares us for that kind of a thing. It prepares Jewish Christians to understand, you may be cut off from the temple and all these things, but you really aren't, because those things are done. Once Jesus died, once for all, there is no more sacrifice for sin. God still has his temple. What does 1 Peter 2 say? 1 Peter 2, 4-5. Peter says, As you come to him, to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are what? Are being built up as a spiritual house, a temple, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christians don't have a temple. We are God's temple. We together are God's house. And what does it say? To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual, not animal, sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus Christ. Now, most commentators point to this measuring of the temple in, in Revelation 11 as a symbol uh, kind of of the preservation of the church. God is measuring it. And so what is measured is safe. What is not measured, that outer court, that outside court, the court of the Gentiles, so-called, although he doesn't call it that here, is left out to be trampled underfoot. He's saying, this part is secure, and you are part of that, that part. Uh, Forty-two months, the Gentiles or the those of this world would trample the holy city. Uh, but even so, God's redeemed people are secure. They dwell secure as God's house. And I think more than that, looking back at that passage uh, in Ezekiel, I think it's not just a symbol of preserving God's people. I think it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of God's house being sustained and built. I think that's part of, of the point, that God's house, his, his real temple, his people in Christ will be built and sustained and preserved. And that brings us to the next thing, maybe the more odd thing, in the chapter, the two witnesses, we've seen the the measuring of the temple, which I think is about the preservation of the church. Here I think we see these two witnesses, which are all about the prophetic witness of the church. I think that is the point in this part of the chapter. In verse 3, what does God call them? He calls them, quote, my, my two witnesses. And what's the length or duration of their ministry on this earth in this vision? The same as the length and duration of the trampling of the holy city. It's, it's said in different terms, but if you do the, do the math, I'm not good at math, but uh, 1260 days is the same as 42 months. Divide 1260 by 30, you come up with, kids, 42, right? 
Three and a half years, that same number you see over and over again throughout Scripture and throughout this part of Revelation. Now in verse 3, God says he's going to, quote, grant authority to his two witnesses to prophesy or preach in his name. What does that remind you of? Where else does, does Christ speak of authority with regard to preaching? Matthew 28, the Great Commission, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 18 to 19. In verses 4 to 6, John goes further. He says, there are, or these are the two olive trees and two lampstands. That's also an Old Testament uh, likeness and reference. That stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, what happens? Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Who does that sound like? Not a trick question. You know who it sounds like. It sounds like Elijah and Moses. Now that has caused uh, or led some dispensationalist uh, scholars to say that in the end times, in the last days, literally Moses and Elijah are going to come back. Now there was a prophecy in Malachi, in Malachi 4, uh, that those two had to come before the coming of Christ. Well, when you when you read your Gospels, what does Jesus say about Elijah? Who who does he say was the fulfillment of that prophecy of, of Elijah returning? John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist didn't know that's what he was doing, but what did John the Baptist wear? He wore the prophetic uniform of Elijah. Camels, you know, when I was, when I was a kid and read those passages, I just thought, well, I guess everybody wore camel's hair and a weird leather belt. Everybody dressed like Captain Caveman, you know, and walked around. That's how first century Jews must have dressed. No! They would have thought it was just as odd as you would think it would be. You know, there's there's been a man, I think it's a Buddhist monk, walking around in Ramona the last week or two, and people have been, oh, he sticks out. Well, John the Baptist would have stuck out in the first century. Why? Because of his attire. Because of what he wore. And what it, and any any Jew worth his salt, when he saw what he was wearing, what would they think he was reminding them of? Elijah. And he was coming to prepare the way of, of the Lord. Now, again, some have said this means they're literally, literally going to come back at some time right before the end. And this is actually what they're going to do. They're going to destroy with fire from their mouth and all these weird things, as if that's what God is teaching us here in the passage. That they're literally going to come back. That is not what this passage is meant uh, to teach. It's meant to teach us something literal in a symbolic form. The point, I think, is that these two witnesses, Christ's witnesses, are his church, and that even his church, us, would share the same prophetic voice uh, or ministry in the world that these prophets did. You know, in the, in the preaching of, of the word of God, ministers of the gospel, uh, really what we should be saying, uh, should be able to say is, thus saith the Lord. What did prophets say? Thus saith the Lord. Remember, we, we looked at the uh, at the previous chapter when John ate the little scroll that was in the hand of the, of the giant angel, the mighty angel, and that was from an Old Testament passage where the prophet was told, take this scroll and eat it, and when you eat it, what do you do? I think it was Ezekiel was told, you, you eat this scroll and you speak my words to the people. And whether or not they listen isn't the point. 
I tell you what to say, and you say, thus saith the Lord. And I think, I think what this is doing is, I think what this imagery is doing here is reminding us or teaching us the continuity between the Old and New Testaments and between the, and the continuity between the prophetic voice of God's people to the world around them. That we are to be, in a sense, uh, not just ministers, but, but I think God's people in general are to be kind of like Moses and Elijah in speaking the word uh, to, to the world around, around them. You know, we say, thus saith the Lord, if we're speaking God's word truthfully. Now, the New Testament church, that's you and me, we share a continuity with the prophetic ministry in the voice of the prophets. Now, these two prophets in John's vision, what did they wear for three and a half years as they ministered? Sackcloth. What is sackcloth a, an image of? What, is it, what does it point to? In the Old Testament, when somebody wore sackcloth and put ashes on their head, what were they expressing? Grief, mourning for sin, repentance. And that's, that is a symbol of repentance. A part of the message of these two witnesses was to be involving repentance. Now, is that not to be a part of the ministry of the gospel in every age? Not just the first century, not just the Old Testament. What was Jesus' message in Mark chapter 1? The first thing we hear of Jesus himself saying is in Mark 1.15. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then what does he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. The first words Mark records for us from the Lord, from Jesus himself, is repent. Repent and believe the gospel. The apostles in the book of Acts had the same message. Repent. Repent and believe. Now, how rarely is the, is the gospel called to repentance heard in our churches today? I'm, I'm tempted to say, when's the last time you heard a sermon about repentance? But I don't want you to throw anything at me. When, when is the last time that you've heard a, a, a sermon about repentance from the scriptures? How often do you think that is taught and preached clearly in our land? In the churches, and I, I have to wonder if what Rob was mentioning about our country today doesn't have a lot to do with that. You know, our our our, our ministers, our pastors, are spending so much of our time trying to dress up the gospel and make it more appealing and less offensive. Uh, when the gospel is offensive, and part of the offense of the gospel, I have to believe, is the call to repentance. We want to we want to make the gospel out to say, "You're okay, I'm okay, you're okay." And that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say you're okay. The Bible says you're a sinner and Jesus had to die to pay for your sin and for my sin. And the gospel call to repentance is a call of grace. Without Christ's death and the grace of God, there is no call to repentance and faith to sinners. Notice something unexpected also happens in our text. Those two witnesses, now if you've never read it before, maybe it's possible somebody in this room hadn't read it before you read it this week. If you've never read it before, part of the middle of the chapter probably throws you for a loop. You're thinking, wow, these, if this is a picture of the church, sign me up. I'm going to go through the streets like the Terminator and preach the word of God. And if somebody gets in my face, I, you know, I get to breathe fire and destroy them and you know, nothing can stop and stand in the way. And yet what happens, you see, in the middle of that, uh, it says that uh, suddenly they're conquered and killed by the beast from the bottomless pit. Suddenly victory in Jesus turns to an ugly scene, an ugly uh, defeat. Now, don't ask me who the beast is. I'm not going to tell you in the, in the sermon, and I don't know if that's the point. The point is, where is he from? The beast is from the pit. It's a satanic 
opposition to the gospel. Now notice when it was, when were they killed? I think this is a key in the text. When does it say they were killed? John says, verse 7, it was only, quote, when they have finished their testimony. When they had finished their testimony, when their testimony to Christ and his gospel was finished or completed, that's when they were killed and only then. I believe this is teaching us to understand and believe that while we're at work in the name of Christ, witnessing uh, to others of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are in a sense, in a sense, indestructible until our testimony is complete. Nothing is going to happen to you. When you read the book of Acts, now, if you know church history, of the, of the apostles, how many of them were not martyred? The guy who wrote this book. Although they tried. Church tradition has that he was boiled in oil. I don't know about you, I think I'd rather just get it over quick than having that kind of thing. And then when they couldn't kill him, they stuck him on Patmos. They were all killed. But when you read the book of Acts, you have all kinds of things where they try to kill them and God, not yet, stops them. The Apostle Peter, the big fish, Herod wants to kill him. He throws him in jail, and what happens? The church is praying for him. The church was gathered together, fervently praying for Peter, and what happens? Peter thinks he's seeing a vision. Peter thinks he's John on Patmos. It's, there's this vision of an angel. You know, my chains are, sounds like a, like a Chris Tomlin song, my chains are gone. You know, his chains fall off, and he walks right out of the prison, and he walks to the house where they're meeting for prayer and knocks on the door and the little girl runs in. It's Peter. And they go, not now. We're praying for Peter, you know. And that's probably his, his guard. It's probably his ghost. We're probably too late. He's probably already dead. And what happens? No, it's him and he gets to preach more. Now he eventually gets crucified upside down. But he didn't get crucified. He didn't get silenced on this earth until his testimony was complete. Stephen. In the book of Acts, now his testimony was complete pretty quick in the story, right? He gives this amazing speech, this amazing sermon, which is like a survey of Old Testament history brought to bear right on the people he was talking to and their rejection of Christ, and they stone him to death. But what happens because of his testimony? The Apostle Paul. Those two things are related. So I think this is supposed to teach us, not that opposition won't come, not that even hostility and persecution won't come, because they will, but that while we were testifying to the work of, of Christ in the gospel, uh, we are indestructible until God has determined our testimony is finished for him. He will not let us stop short of where he has, how long he wants us to preach and minister to the gospel for him in his name. Well, not, not only that, but notice what happens to those two witnesses after they're killed. They don't stay dead. Funny how Christians, every Christian, every believer in Christ is going to have that bad habit according to the world. You're not going to stay dead. You're going to rise from, from the grave. You're going to imitate or emulate, as these two witnesses did, the resurrection of Christ. Now notice how, how bad this gets. It says, you know, the wicked, what are they doing? They're, they're kind of having an anti-Christ Christmas party. They're exchanging presents. They're having parties. They're excited. They're like, ding dong, the witnesses are dead. Yay us, you know, yay Satan. And what happens? Well, God breathes a breath of life into them, and they don't stay dead, it says in verses uh, 11 to 13. After the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, 
And great fear fell upon those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies did what? Watched them. Party's over. Who's vindicated? The, pro- the witnesses or the, the wicked? The wit- God's witnesses are vindicated. They're raised from the dead. They're taken to heaven while their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tent of the city fell. I mean, at that hour, not a week later, not a month later, they knew that it was connected by the time in this vision. And a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. God will vindicate, and always does, his witnesses, his witnessing church, his martyrs, even in the resurrection. That's why Paul says in Romans 8, I know I keep bringing this up, Romans 8.37 is the theme verse of the whole book. We are what? More than conquerors through him who loved us. Not because we're not going to experience persecution and tribulation and trouble, but even through it, in spite of everything that the pit of hell can send at God's church and Christ's people, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Well, that brings us to the last thing in the text, which is the seventh trumpet, which I think is the the triumph of the church, a reminder of the triumph of Christ and his church through him, the last trumpet, the seventh trumpet. Now, when that trumpet is blown in the vision, John says that, that there's going to be loud voices in heaven, verse 15, and what are they going to say? It sounds like they almost want to sing the hallelujah chorus. The kingdom of this world, of the world, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, here we are again, You know, this is one of the things that has drawn confusion for some in in studying Revelation is that a number of times throughout the book, you have a picture of the end. And this has caused some to say, okay, well, he's sort of going to come back and then come back again a second time, you know, a third time and whatnot. Uh, It's throughout the book we're given a picture of the end to remind us of, of where things are going, God's intended end and purpose for these things. And his intended end and purpose of these things is that the kingdom of this world will one day become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, of his Messiah. And he will reign, what, forever and ever. He's reigning right now. One day he will consummate that reign for all to see. Notice it's it's an allusion to Psalm 2. It says, the nations raged. The nations raged. But what happened? The nations raged, but the wrath of God came and, quote, the time for the dead to be judged. This is the end. This is the end of the age here in chapter 11, and we'll see it again later in the book. And it also says not just that the, the dead will be judged, but it says that God's servants are going to be what? Verse 18, rewarded for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints. Notice he doesn't say for the rewarding of the prophets and apostles, although that's included. If he just said the prophets, who would you think of? Well, he, of course he's going to reward Moses and Elijah and all these other Old Testament you know, big, big names. He's going to reward his servants. And who are his servants? The prophets and saints and those who fear your name. And then what does he say? Both small and great. Who's including, who is he including there in that? You! If you're a believer in Christ, you're serving him in your generation 
uh, as best you can in your own way and being faithful to the gospel, he will judge those who oppose his gospel, those who are the enemies of the cross of Christ, and he will come when he comes back, he will reward you by his grace. You don't earn anything. Reward is not earned. But God, by his grace, rewards his people. And then the last thing we see in verse 19, the chapter comes full circle. You started with the temple. Now it ends with another thing about the temple. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. That last part is something you see throughout the book of Revelation at times, this whole thing about lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. It's a picture of Sinai. But the the ark is open in the temple. The, 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 God's temple in heaven is open. The ark of the covenant was seen. In the old in the Old Testament, did, did you get to see the ark of the covenant? No. Well, guess what? Now, his temple is in heaven. At the end, is finally open. It's the grand opening of the temple, so to speak. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And then you had thunder and lightning and hail and all these things. That's, you get to be a part of that. That's what the vision is, is, is showing us. Not an actual physical structure, of course, but it's a picture of being with the Lord and being God's temple in heaven being open. What is, what is God's temple in heaven? It's the place where God dwells with his redeemed people forever, which is where Revelation ends. It's the promise throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, that he will be a God to us and we will be a people to him and he will what? Dwell with us. That is what the temple was a picture of. God dwelling with his people. Uh, and so I ask this morning from the text, will you be there? Not in a physical temple, but is this what this symbolizes? Does it picture your heavenly home? Are you going to be there? Are you in Christ by faith so that your sins are forgiven and that you, like a living stone, like the New Testament writers, both Paul and Peter say, are being built into God's temple? Are you a part of God's temple? And are you now testifying to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ? Because that's that's how God's temple is built, by his grace and mercy in the gospel. That's that's our part of the mission, to be to be his witnesses, to be his witnesses, to testify to the gospel of God's grace, even the call to repentance. And what happens? God builds his temple. Christ builds his church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. By God's grace, his purposes in the gospel cannot fail. No matter what the gates of hell try to do, they cannot prevail against it.